So a few months ago, uh, Jen and I had a rather difficult parenting decision to make when it came to our son, Zach. Zach had come to us with a question. Dad, Mom, can I go on a trip if I pay for all of it myself? Probably, Zach, uh, where are you looking to go? And he says to us, Guatemala. Jen and I were like, excuse me, uh, uh, where? <laughs> Zach said, Guatemala. Uh, you're going to have to explain that one to us, Zach. So he did. A friend of Zach's had asked Zach to go to Guatemala with him in sort of a senior trip kind of experience. He said it would only be for a few days and they would pay for all of it. And it would be one of those once in a lifetime experiences, could he go? Well, Jen and I were not sure what to say. Guatemala is not exactly right around the corner. Uh, we had heard that there were some parts of Guatemala that were not that safe. Uh, and were we being responsible parents if we let him go? So we asked about a million questions, and that's on the conservative end. Where are you staying? How exactly will you pay for it? Uh, what is your day-by-day, hour-by-hour itinerary? Is your passport ready? What about the currency there? Will you have data for your phone? And on and on and on. And in the end, Zach convinced us. He laid out all of those elements, all those answers to our questions, and then some. Not to mention, he was 18, so he figured if he's old enough to serve his country, he's old enough to visit another country for a few days and come back. Plus, the gift of modern technology was going to let us talk to him and even see him through most of his journey. So in the end, we said yes, and in the end, Zach went. The main thing on the agenda in Guatemala was to do a particular hike on the Asatenango volcano experience. It's a hike that is world famous. Now, Zach had hiked a little bit before and he was in pretty good shape, but this was no ordinary hike. People from around the world would come to hike this particular volcano. And again, it's a volcano that they were hiking. It was over 12 miles round trip and it had over 5,000 feet of elevation. That's almost one mile straight up over the course of the volcano journey. They had to be aware of the heat. They had to stay hydrated. Zach said multiple times on the trip, he was dripping wet, literally soaked like a shower, that he was able to wring out his shirt as they were making the trek. It was a full day just to go up. They weren't even gonna be able to do it all in one day. They had to sleep on top of the volcano, and then they'd have to hike back down the next day. All of this was going on for Zach, but in addition to all of this, this was the last day of their trip that they were there. So they had to carry all of the luggage they had brought with them on the front and back. Like there was no other place to leave it. And so they had to carry it with them on this journey. Zach said it was the physically hardest thing he's ever done. Sometimes he said he wondered if he was going to make it. And they were also very close to the equator on this particular hike. So they would sweat intensely during the day, but then at night it was incredibly cold in the high altitude. Zach got blisters. He said his muscles were aching. He was utterly exhausted at places in the hike. So to say it was a challenge would be an understatement. So why do it? Why go to all this effort, especially when it was so hard? Well, for really this one moment. To get to the summit. To get to the peak. 
to see the sun rise near the equator. They had to get up before dawn in the dark and do even a little bit more hiking just to be at the right spot to watch the sun rise, to be there on the summit to actually see the sunrise. Zach did that and he said it was one of the best feelings of his entire life. I asked him later, was all the pain, all the sweat, all the effort worth it to get to the peak and see the sunrise that day in that particular location near the equator? And without hesitation, Zach said, absolutely yes. Why? Because Zach said that in that experience, uh, the, the, uh, the air that he was breathing and the way that it felt and the light and the glory and the power of that moment was one of the best experiences he had ever had. He said that one moment made up for all of the other hardships he had gone through to get to that one moment. He said it was one of those moments where you feel completely in the best way alive. Today, we are in Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 is really the summit moment of all of Romans. All of Romans crescendos to this point where we hear some of the greatest and most soaring language in all of the Bible. We hear today in Romans chapter 8 verses 37 and 38, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Powerful, soaring language. Now, as we consider these words, let's try to break this down a little bit, just so we can catch even a glimpse of what Paul is sharing with us today. So to do that, we're going to back up just a couple of verses before the ones that I just read. We're going to look at verses 34 and 35. And throughout Romans, but especially in Romans 8, Paul has been laying out his case for Christ. Now remember, Paul is a scholar. He's a legal-minded person. And so he's been laying out this case and he's been laying out this summation of why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in the most skilled, in the most convincing, in the most thoughtful way possible from a legal, orderly perspective. And in doing this, Paul is making a legal argument that there is nothing greater in the entire universe than the love of Jesus. And that the love of Christ is not just an abstract love. Listen to what Paul says in verses 34 and 35. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? What is Paul telling us here? Paul is saying there is no force in the universe that can separate us or split us off from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not hardship, not persecution, not famine, not any other force in the universe. Some of you might have seen over the course of this past summer the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, it came out. Many of you might know it's the story of the race to develop the atomic bomb in America towards the end of World War II. And the movie does a great job of highlighting the ethical and moral dilemmas around developing that bomb. Atomic energy is effective because of the splitting of the material at an atomic level that then releases a powerful energy. 
So the more dense the material being split, the greater the energy that's then released. Atomic bombs are made primarily out of uranium and plutonium. And these are two of the densest elements in all the world. Just to try to put this in perspective, if you look at something like, say, calcium, calcium has a density of 1.55 grams per cubic centimeter. Carbon is a little bit more dense. It has a density of 2.26 grams per cubic centimeter, and aluminum has a density of 2.7 grams per cubic centimeter. Now keep those in mind, because if we go to something like plutonium, it has a density of 13.67 grams per cubic centimeter, and then uranium has a density of 19 grams per cubic centimeter, making plutonium and uranium two of the most dense materials in the world. Now remember, the greater the density, the more effort it takes to split them apart, but then the more energy that's released. So harnessed in the right way, atomic energy can be incredibly, incredibly powerful. So part of what Paul is laying out in this passage is that the love of Jesus is so deep, so dense, there's nothing in the universe, not even hardship or death or persecution or any other earthly force that can split us away from the love of Christ. The essence of glory means weight. We've talked about that in the past at different times. Paul's telling us that the glory or the weight or the density of Jesus is so great that nothing in the universe, not even hardship or death, can force us or split us away from that love. Nothing. Why? <laughs> Paul tells us. Jesus' followers can have confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because of what Jesus has done in the past and what Jesus does now. It's because of what Jesus did in the past and what Jesus is doing now. What did Jesus do in the past? We are told. Romans 8 verse 34, Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life. Now the verb here, died, is something called an aorist active participle. Now, don't tune out with me because this is actually really important. What it basically means is that there is something that happened once in the past. It's a once and done thing that's over. However, it has continuing ramifications. So for example, I could say to you that Jen and I got married on June 12, 1999. That was a once and done event, that day of our marriage but it continues to have impact in our lives every single day. It impacts our reality every single day. For some of you, it may be the date you graduated with that diploma. It's a once and done event, but it continues to have ramifications for you in helping you in your current job or any job that you're seeking, those kinds of things. So for Jesus to have died and be raised again means it's an event that did occur. It is factual, it is. Death is defeated, but it continues to have ramifications in our reality for you and I today. Factually then, there's a new reality. The hold on death has been split wide open. It has been defeated. Why? Because the power found in the glory and the weight of the love and the life of Jesus in the resurrection was greater than the power or the weight or the hold of death and sin over us. One of the best descriptions I can think of with this is in the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've never seen that movie, I invite you to check it out, especially with your kids or your grandkids. But in the movie, there's this character, Aslan, 
who is a great lion who represents a god figure or the god figure in the movie. And Aslan is wrongfully put to death by a wicked white witch. However, what the witch does not know is that the innocence and the love of Aslan ultimately carries more weight than the death inflicted wrongly upon him. So there's this scene in the movie where Aslan is laid on a table and slain. And then there's this beautiful moment in the movie where the table that Aslan had been laying on, where he had been wrongfully slain, eventually as a new day dawns, that table of rock splits open and Aslan appears alive again. Why? Because the power of love is denser than the power of the death of that stone table. God's dense love splits and destroys the power of death over us. This one fact from the past forever alters our reality today and moving forward. We live into a new reality where death's grip no longer has a hold because of the resurrection event. So because of what Jesus has done in the past, says Paul, we can rest assured that nothing in the universe today can split us from that love. Now, this will be enough in and of itself to understand that because of what Jesus has done in the past, it no longer, there's, there's a continuing reality that sin no longer has a hold on us here today. But Paul's not done. Look what Paul also tells us in Romans 8.34. It's not just the past. Paul also says, and is also interceding for us. Now there's a verb shift. The verb is not in the past, the verb is actually in the present. So that there's an ongoing reality right here, right now. Jesus is actively, presently interceding for us with and before God. Remember, Paul's presenting his case on why death does not have the final say. Not only has Jesus defeated death in the past through his resurrection, but in the description given here, Paul is sharing with us that death is also defeated for us now because of what Jesus is doing through his current intercession. What this means is, is that God just does not turn away. In fact, cannot just blindly turn away and look the other way and ignore the repercussions of sin because somebody has to account for or atone for or answer for that sin. Because Jesus is currently interceding for us, part of what Jesus is doing is making the active case for us. He is actively taking on sin and paying for it with his own life. So that it's more than just you and I being pardoned for a past mistake. It actually goes beyond a sense of neutral of having past mistakes erased. It's not just if this is zero and we've made mistakes and that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, those mistakes are erased to bring us back to neutral. It's actually through Jesus currently interceding with us and for us, moving us proactively beyond neutral into a brand new status of new life. So again, if we're here and we make mistakes and those mistakes are erased, it brings us back to neutral. We don't stop there. Jesus actively now today intercedes that we can move proactively into new life. We could say it this way, that as Jesus intercedes for us, we're not just pardoned and found not guilty for the past, but this judge actually, think of a judge, actually brings us into his house to enjoy life with him to move forward. It's not just get out of jail, it's come into this new place and be with me, move into new life. 
all of this happens because of Jesus's current intercession. So if we think about it, God's justice is still met. A price is paid. It's just that the price is paid by Jesus rather than us. So death has no argument left to make. It's Jesus' way of saying death got what it wanted as a result of sin, which is death. But it got Jesus' death. And in this way, the justice, the, uh, the holiness of God is also satisfied. But then Jesus doesn't remain bound by that death. Jesus offers new life, intercedes currently for you and I, which means that you and I then, when we live into life in Jesus, we get his life as well. It's not just the absence of sin or the absence of death. It's proactively a new life defined in him. So it's a perfect argument in all ways. God's justice is met. The consequences of sin are not ignored, but you and I get life in Jesus because of what Jesus did do and what Jesus does do. Do we start to see why death is not able to separate us from the love of God? All the power of death has been stripped and defeated in Christ. We cannot explain this explicitly, powerfully, forcefully enough. It's incredible. I think for many of us, we, we get this sort of in our, in our heads, but I'm not sure we really get it in our being or in the core of our being. It's kind of like saying to a six-year-old boy who's playing in the mud puddle, who has never known the ocean, trying to explain the ocean to that six-year-old playing in the mud puddle, all they know is a mud puddle. So try as hard as you might to explain the ocean and what it means and what it looks like. The imagination of that six-year-old boy probably is not able to comprehend the power of the ocean when all you've known is a mud puddle. The only way to know the ocean is to come and experience it fully and firsthand. Some of us are still playing in mud puddles when there's an entire ocean of God's love and reality out there with us available. I think Paul is trying to lead us to the ocean here. So to summarize, because this is a lot, Paul reminds us that death's grip is destroyed and thus it cannot separate us from the love of Jesus because of what Jesus has done in the past, in the resurrection, but also what Jesus does now by interceding for us. So because of all of those realities then, Paul with confidence can share Romans 8 verses 35, 37, 38. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you feel the soaring nature of it? This holy summit of sorts. I love the observation that preacher Libby Howe makes when she says this eighth chapter of Romans is Paul's testimony. 
The grand finale here then is verses 37 to 39. She says he's still a lawyer and debater, and Paul's rhetoric up to this point in the text employs the tools of his trade. But before too long, he just can't help himself anymore, and his beautiful theological propositions about life in the Spirit, the reconciliation of creation, and the intercessions of size too deep for words become a full-blown, unapologetic testimony. I love that. It's almost like Paul can't even hold himself back anymore. It's the difference between speaking from belief and speaking from witness. Most of us speak from our faith, and and that is good, uh, a faith that we believe at least. And again, that's a good thing. Belief is a good thing. We can offer good thoughts and, and understandings about an accurate and right belief. But when we get into the ocean of God's love, when we experience the summit of God's love, when we experience death's hand pried away from our souls, then we no longer speak of faith. We witness faith. We testify faith and our souls soar. Faith for Paul is a behavioral, as in a we witness to our faith kind of thing. It's not just cognitive. It's not just in our heads. It's not just observed from a distance. It's experienced. How about us? This is one of the reasons why next week we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to come, we're going to worship, but we're going to invite some folks among us to share some of their testimony with us. We are so excited about this because it's a chance to witness and experience faith and not just talk about it from a distance. Testimonies allow us to witness to our faith and recognize all that God has done and is doing in our lives. Testimonies have a soaring nature to them, just like Paul is sharing with us today, as he is bearing witness with us, because it's born out of his experience with the living God. Paul has experienced all these death realities in his life, and he has lived firsthand to see those elements overthrown, that the love, the resurrection, the power of Jesus is greater. So that for Paul, this is all deeply personal. Pastor J.D. Greer shares a fascinating insight here. He says, it's interesting that in Romans 8.35, Paul lists afflictions and distress and persecution and famine, nakedness, the sword, danger, And then he answers and asks this question, who can separate us from the love of God? Now, you normally wouldn't think of all those things I just listed as being followed by a question that begins with who. I mean, those are not people after all, they were things. So why not say what can separate us from the love of God after asking and listing all of those things? Was that a typo? Uh, Did Paul make a mistake here? I don't think so. First, because We all know in our own life, when things come at us, it doesn't feel inanimate. It really does feel like a who. I mean, think in your own life, when bad things happen, it starts to feel very personal to us. Almost like we feel like somebody specific is targeting us. It has that personal nature. And so we say in our own minds or hearts, who's doing this against me? But also, Greer says, Paul wants to set up a contrast with the greater who. No matter what or who is against you right now, and I just don't invite you, get a picture in your mind right now, who or what might you feel is against you right now? 
What's the who in your life or who is the who in your life that just feels so against you? And as you're holding that in your heart, know that the who of Jesus is greater than the who of those who may be against you. And when we do that, we begin to encounter the personal nature that's going on here. We're not imagining or encountering some inanimate object here today. We are encountering the ultimate who in Jesus Christ, which then reminds us that God is stronger, that God is not just going to defeat these things for us. He's going to make us, as Romans 8.37 says, more than conquerors which means the who of your salvation is greater than the who of your opposition, according to Greer. The who of your salvation is greater than the who of your opposition. Let that sink into your hearts this day. There's a reason why these particular words are shared at so many funerals, to be reminded that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. That for any who call on the name of Jesus, for any who believe in and embrace in their hearts that Christ is Lord and Savior, there is no force in the universe that can separate us from that love. That is a powerful, holy, wonderful reality. I wonder for us today, here and now, what is tempting us or who is tempting us to think that we can be separated from the love of God? Is it the who of cancer or the who of addiction or the who of a broken relationship? Is it the who that comes from an unexpected attack from someone or the who of depression or worry or financial concern? Is it the who of greed or seeking comfort or apathy? Is it the who of extremism or abuse or something else? Whatever it is, I wanna ask us to name it and then realize that for those of us who call on the name of Jesus, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even the who's that are in our hearts and minds right now. Before we close this day, some of you may have noticed, if you are tracking with me and paying attention, that I did something a little bit unusual in the reading of the scripture today. Earlier, when I read verses 34 to 38, you may have noticed I skipped one verse, verse 36. And it's a downright confusing and depressing lyric right in the middle of this soaring language from Paul. In Romans 8.36, it says, As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Why in the world does Paul include that verse here in the midst of this soaring language? Well, one of the things that Paul would have known is that anytime he would share a brief word of Scripture, it would have taken the minds of people then to the entire scripture passage to which he was referencing. So for Paul and his readers or listeners, they would have known the Old Testament extremely well. So if he quoted even one line of a passage from the Old Testament, they would have known the whole passage. It would kind of be like you and I, if I quote one line of something and you know the rest of the song. So for example, the song Amazing Grace, if I say to you, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved, and I pause there, many of you would know that the next phrase would be that saved a wretch like me, and you could go on and sing much of the rest of the song. That's what Paul's doing here in Romans 8.36 with this quote from uh, Psalm 44. And if you thought that one line was dark, try reading the entire psalm, and I invite you to do that when you get a chance. 
Because Psalm 44 was written as a lament in a very dark time in the history of Israel when it seemed like God had forsaken God's people and all of the enemies of Israel and God's people were surrounding them and crushing them. And the psalmist calls out, God, where are you? God, did you take your eyes off of us? Essentially saying, I know it's our fault, God, but are you ever going to do anything to bring any good out of this? Or have you just forgotten us completely? Well, Romans 8 is the gospel answer to the problems raised in Psalm 44. When Paul proclaims, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And look what Paul's doing, even the way he physically lays this out, both before and after. This one verse, verse 36, in this reference to Psalm 44, Paul has this soaring language of the victory of Christ. It's almost like Psalm 44 is literally being swallowed up and overwhelmed by the victory. Not just figuratively, but literally in the text. The victory comes before the difficulty of Psalm 44, and the victory comes after the, the difficulty of Psalm 44 which is Paul's way of saying to us one more time that this victory, in this victory, you are more, more, more than conquerors. Maybe you don't feel much like a conqueror today, but all of those things that oppose you, persecution, famine, the sword, earthly and demonic powers, anything that would affect your situation, they all pale in comparison to the victory of Christ. Because in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. Your life is not defined by your situation. Your life is defined by who you are in the living, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And you are a treasured child of God. When this belief becomes reality, when we experience the power of the Holy Spirit and the victory of the living Christ in our lives, then our perception and our reality begin to change in light of that victory. Today, may the power of the Holy Spirit come among us in such a way that we know, that we know, that we know, that we know the experience of the reality that nothing in the universe can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And may that allow us to be more than conquerors. Let us go forth in the glory and the love and the reality of this soaring language that Paul offers us today in the victory of Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, may it be so.